It's June 7th, 2021. This is Rook. He is an Iranian-American mechanical engineer who grew up in Iran fascinated by flying in space and then came to America and has worked his way to the apex of aeronautic institutions. Barmak Talekani is a project manager at NASA and he joins me to discuss his journey and the future of space exploration. But first, to Nottingham, England, where an Iranian-British young data analyst decided to take her love of cooking and crunchy rice online a few years ago and has created a popular brand in the process. Sahar Fatemi joins us to discuss all things Tadiq. Plus, we have your letters. This is Conversations from to and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 116 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam, Dustan Aziz. Durud Bashama. We are on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're coming to you on rookmedia.com. If you want to head straight to any one of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox are the platforms. If you like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to Instagram or YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in Persian, as well as English, check us out on Telegram. Akian Barmak Talekani from NASA joining us uh, in about 45 minutes. Really interesting man who is literally affecting the future of human space travel and exploration, working on the development of a lunar crane. Looking forward to talking to him. Very cool. And Sahar Fatemi is the founder of Tadik Lover. Even cooler. <laughs> <laughs> she joins me from, wait, it gets cooler than this. She joins me from England in a few minutes, still in her 20s, but uh, such a doer. You know, she has spent two years as a football analyst for the English Premier League football and then founded Tadik Lover, which has taken off. And uh, I mean, people love her. It's like a dream person for me, pulling together football and Tadik. You know, <laughs> what, could be, <laughs> what could be more impressive? Hello, the fabulous Kian. Hi, Gian. You had a weekend away. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I mean, we're in the I middle. know because you were supposed to, you, you collect the letters. Yes, I do. And you send them to me for the Monday show. Usually yeah. you do so on a Sunday night. Or right, early, right. But you were, you know, Listen. late this morning, you were like, oh, I just <laughs> had a weekend away. Uh, <laughs> we were in the middle of a heat wave. I had to get close to water. So uh-huh. we went out to a lake. And You um, and the doctor? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And I needed uh, to cool off somehow. Was he... Um, 
prescribing any medicine. So <laughs> no, I he was not. I don't know what euphemism <laughs> to use. Uh, now, we are trying to be healthy and to uh, uh, do intermittent fasting. What did you eat at the lake or cottage? Uh, all the things I shouldn't have been eating. Exactly. That's why I don't go to a lake. Yeah, it's, it's just nothing chips good and, comes from it. Because you figure you're in nature, so right. you're being healthy. <laughs> exactly. You're like, oh, I'm being active. That's you're right. Just lying I'm sitting by a lake. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Uh, you know, we posted our first, our beta version of Rook TV on the weekend. We kind of didn't make a big announcement about it, but this is the first time we've actually shot uh, an interview uh, with a few different cameras in the Rook studio. Because, yeah. I mean, we haven't been able to have guests here That's until right. the vaccinations have now started and all that. So Nima Nozeri came into the studio mm -hmm. and we had him on the show last week. So we put up a clip of that interview on Instagram and on our YouTube Extras channel. And uh, uh, it was nice to get it out there. And yeah, people are reacting yeah. to it. Nice to have cameras in the studio. Yeah. Thanks to uh, uh, Captain Reza yeah. and uh, and uh, Savvy Roham and Pixus yeah. who also helped mm -hmm. out with that. Thanks to all you guys. So uh, if you want to check out the first iteration of Rook TV, yeah. it's on our Instagram channel right now. We also put up, we quietly debuted the first of our Rook Funnies. <laughs> <laughs> Material that we think is funny, that makes us laugh, that, that we've collected over the last, uh, since we launched the show. And the first one, of course, being Oogie and the Rasu, <laughs> the story of my French bulldog and the, the, the skunk, the Rasu. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so that's up. At our, I mean, it's just hilarious to me. That there's a picture of Oogie and people are you know listening to. I, I love it. I love everything about it. Oogie and the Rasu. That's also on our Instagram channel at uh, Rook Media. Hello, Groovy Shia. Hi, hi, hi. And hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Uh, have you guys seen how Shia is dressed today? I Shia, just stand up for a second. Did you not see Keon? I did. Let me let me explain something. Shia is dressed. So bohemian today, it's it's like he's doing an ad for a youth hostel. Like it's like he like he is literally dressed like a juggler I bought weed from in Istanbul a few years ago. He's, he's like a he's like a. Are you is this an artist costume or are you? I, I, we already know you're an artist. It's heat wave, so right, I need right. to dress something. You, you don't know? wear shorts. He's got the. It's it's cooler than shorts actually. Yeah. He's got like patch, like colorful patch, like flare jeans with like sandals yeah. and, a, and a, like he a. He looks like a character from Game of Thrones. Like <laughs> one of the he looks like he looks like Socrates. <laughs> yeah, it's like and, and it, it looks good though. And it came from Thailand, which oh. I used oh. to live there, and okay. so I. Oh, yeah, you lived I, in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. Well, Shia, I mean, you have outdone yourself. <laughs> you know, I. Uh, <laughs> Have you seen this, Captain Reza? Oh, I have. You Your girlfriend would not. You, you know, you'd be out the door if you dressed like that. Oh, I'd be. Dead. Captain Reza is wearing like you know pointy shoes and perfectly. His, his wardrobe has upgraded since oh, yeah. he got a girlfriend. Well, get out upgraded here. in I'm your eyes. I mean, if you're a bohemian, you know, if you're a folk festival girl, you'd like the way uh, Reza is, or, or the other Reza, the Shia is dressed. But uh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I was, I was like. Uh, you know, why interview Rastok when you could have the whole band in Shia's clothing attire? So <laughs> he looks funny. like every uh, indigenous community of Iran uh, in one pant suit. Uh, you should dress like that one time. You know, I did dress like that. Oh, I, was, I was 19. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, Shia is young, uh, you know, he's yeah. a young soul uh, uh, with a, a gray beard at this point. Uh, 
Listen, I you I, all you need is a pan flute and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and some edibles, and we'll you know we've, we're entertained for a, a couple of days. Uh, beautiful, Shia. But um, Shia, you know, we did the group pick, which we've now put on our website mm-hmm. for our one million streams. We put a, we did a photo of the yeah. group, and you couldn't Shia's sitting, so you couldn't see his sort of baggy artist. Still, still looks like a philosopher. <laughs> he always looks like a. Philosopher. Everybody looks good in the. You know, I got some comments about the group pick. I don't know. This is my entire life. My entire life, I, you know, I was on TV for a few years. People mm-hmm. would, people meet me in person, mm-hmm. and they go, oh. <laughs> I'm not kidding with it. Go, oh, I thought you were shorter. Like, I don't know what it is about the way I look in pictures and on TV that people think I'm short, right? Yeah, Normally, yeah. you think someone is taller. Yeah. You know, you see That's an right. anchor person, you go, oh, they're so tall. And then you meet them in person, they're tiny, you know? And with me, so again, with this group photo, <laughs> then I got, so somebody writes on my uh, one of my pages, like, oh, uh, whoa, you look tall in this picture. And I'm like, why do you why would that be surprising to you <laughs> that I look tall and then and then she goes oh well let's see if that's really how tall you are in other words mm-hmm. I would have had to have dictated that the photo be edited for me to look <laughs> taller no but I get that too I get that too from yeah you're tall as yeah, well yeah, people think you're yeah, short yeah yeah when they see me not person, that there's anything like, wrong with being short no, of course no, yes it's but, actually you know. quite attractive to some people <laughs> but <laughs> when I when people see me in person they're like Oh, you're tall. I'm like, well, what did you like expect? Why, yeah. why would you think I was short? But I don't know what it is. But I thought before meeting you in person, I thought you'd be shorter too. <laughs> I'm not joking. When I saw you, I'm like, oh, this is almost my height. To be like, honest, you kind of surprised me too, because I usually you wear see? high heels, but I was high heels. 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 It must be high <laughs> to wear high. I usually wear high heels, but that right. day for whatever reason, I was wearing flats. And in the picture, you look significantly taller I know. than me. I, so I, I, why is I don't crazy. understand why that's a shock to me. But Reza, I kind of get it with you. I kind of, in my mind's eye, I think of you, and then I see you in person, and you are a a tall guy. And I I feel like my height doesn't go with my face, maybe. (laughs) I know. Do you think it's maybe because, I think maybe because I have a round face or something. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. There was a guy, uh, there's a a very handsome man on uh, CBC called Ian Hannah Mansing. Mm -hmm. You know, he's Mm -hmm. a South Asian guy. And uh, this guy, I mean, he's a very handsome guy. People look at him and they think he he's is tall. a tall man. You know, he is tiny. I mean, he is, <laughs> he's comes up to my waist. No. And then we would stand next to each other at CBC events wow. and people would be like, this is really weird because they would look at him and he would be shorter <laughs> than me. And I don't know why they thought I was so small. That's you so know? Crazy, well, you know? showed them. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. But then she doesn't believe it in the picture. She said, oh, well, we'll see about whether you're really that tall. Because <laughs> you can't Photoshop someone taller. How could you do that? Well, you can do I anything guess you these can. Days. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it can. It'd be weird. Pots of the artist can make it happen, man. <laughs> That's true. Pots are make me four feet taller. <laughs> <laughs> but you're tiny. Yeah, no, go. Um, all right, let's get to Oh, I should mention, if you are a fan of our program or if you do listen regularly, we would love you to become a patron. And you can call me short or tall or whatever you want. Uh, but become a patron. Go to rookmedia.com and press the support us button. It means a lot to us. It's how we keep this thing going. $5 or $10 a month to become a patron of Rook. Press the support us button at rookmedia.com. We'd love you to become a patron. All right. Philosopher Shia. Yes. Captain Reza. 
the fabulous Keon. Oh, we have letters today, too. Oh, yeah. What do we yeah, have letters yeah. about? Uh, it's about the Rana Mansour episode as well as the Rastok episode. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Quite a mixed okay. bag of letters. Your people. <laughs> Your pants, Shia. <laughs> I like the Rastok, like, they probably just, they normally dress in, like, perfectly manicured yeah, corporate yeah. suits, you know, just for the, <laughs> they put on the stuff to do the festival, yeah, just, you yeah, know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what Shia is trying to do. Maybe uh, his music is going I more know, but I felt when I saw Shia, I, wanted, I was felt like I felt like wishes. going to for advice. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. to <go laughs> in, I want three wishes from Shia. Why? Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why is the world round, Shia? Well. <laughs> 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 Shia, you're going to be awesome when you're 100 years old. Oh, man. You're going to oh, have the, the same, you can keep this outfit, you know, and then just have the long Gandalf. You, know, you need a stick, you know, a long stick in your hand. wisdom. You shall not pass. This shall pass. You won't believe it, but I used to walk with a stick. No. No, come on. Yeah, Why? Yeah, oh, please, Why? please bring back the stick. No, please bring. No, really, there, there, I, I had a very, I don't know. It was kind of magical sticks. It's like oh no, I, I really. <laughs> I, 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 it's in Tehran right now, but it's hard for me to uh, separate myself from the stick. It was wait. Yeah. So what did you do with the stick? Like you, it helped you walk or? No, I I I love to play with the sticks <laughs> and <laughs> walk around with the sticks. It just yeah. gets more interesting. You guys <laughs> never. It's an. Unending well of interest. <laughs> no. Wait, so what was the stick made of, Shia? It, uh, it's a, do you know, nay? Like an instrument, right? Yeah, but yeah. it's what it, it, it like a it, flute. Yeah, it was uh-huh. a huge nay, huge, thick nay. And it, it was really, it was, it was something, you know. It, it uh, gave you good all, energy. All, all of my friends, they would love to have it for a moment and can uh-huh. play with this. Oh. Okay, well, that's the, and, and, did you feel like it gave you good luck or something? Or no, but I mean, I I, f- I felt good, you know. You walked around. You had it in your right hand, maybe. Yes. And you walked, and would you would like Gandhi, like you would sort of <laughs> as you walk, you would. <laughs> yes, but yeah. oh. did you play it? Like <laughs> no, 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 no. It was just a wood. It huh. wasn't. Anything. So why, how, why would you leave it in Tehran right. if it was so important? Uh. So I I I miss that, but I I mm. can. Can you not have it sent to you? I mean, yeah, you can send a piece of stick, but I guess well, it people costs send more. skis and things. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you could put it in a. Yeah. I mean, you can buy another one. It probably costs more to ship it than to buy. Oh, no, listen, one. that's a magical stick. Oh, that's yeah. true. That's true. I forgot. You can just <laughs> buy the stick. <laughs> I mean, magic. this is <laughs> magic. <laughs> it's a potion. Is <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's no, amazing. Uh, yeah, I yeah I missed it. You need a, uh, you know what a cauldron is? You need a big, like a giant pot. Speaking of Tadik, you need a big, giant, what do they call a cauldron? Cauldron, uh, you know? Dig. Uh, dig is, is pot, but like a. No, that's problematic. Uh, oh, 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 what's uh, dig? Dig is the cauldron. A giant cauldron? Yeah, okay, yeah. perfect, perfect. So you need that with some, you know, you're brewing something with your stick, <laughs> you know? You already got the, I mean. And then ride my stick to the sky. I am telling you, man, 100 bucks an hour. Come to Shia for advice. Set up a tent, you know? I wonder who Shia was in another life. Your soul was probably some kind of, like, majestic person. All right. <laughs> 
Let's get to our first guest. So letters coming up, Barmak Talekani. Barmak Talekani. This guy's a professional. He works with NASA. Of course yeah. he a does. Serious yeah. 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 He's a serious person. He's listening to this, you know, yeah, weed like, in Istanbul, Shia. I mean, you know, the doctor at the lake. I mean, he's just like, what have I got myself into? Hopefully he's not on, you know, he's not listening yet. Uh, my first guest today is a former football analyst in the English Premier League and an entrepreneur who has, in the last couple of years, become the proud promoter of all things to do with Tadig. That's right. You know it. You love it. You are overwhelmed with guilt because you eat too much of it. And if you are non-Iranian, you may not care what it's called. You just want to get your hands on some of that delicious, crispy rice. So for the uninitiated, Tadik is a Persian specialty, and it is essentially scorched rice, also known as crunchy rice. It's a thin crust of slightly browned rice at the bottom of the cooking pot, and it is produced during the cooking of rice over direct heat from a flame. Well, Sahar Fatemi innocently started an Instagram page in 2018 that was a testament to her love of Tadik. And now Tadik Lover, as it's called, is a full-on interactive site, a popular Instagram channel, and the epicenter of live shows with many Iranian and non-Iranian chefs from around the world. Sahar was born in England in the 1990s, grew up in Isfahan, and went back to England with her family at the age of 14. She went to uni, she became a data analyst, and hung out at the top echelons of English football for a couple of years, but now aims to bring food lovers and passionate cooks from around the world together to learn from each other and experience different cultures. And it all starts with, she says, Tadik. Although, as we will discuss, popular cuisine and business runs in her family, so it's not so surprising that this has become a hit. Recently, Sahar has officially launched her unique Tadik Lover products. But right now, Sahar Fatemi joins me from Nottingham, England. Hello. Hi, Jian. Thank you for the interaction. It's so good to have you on the You know, I'm in awe of you, right? You have united two of my great passions, football and Tadik. You're like the perfect person. <laughs> I have heard that before so many times. Like, they were the best duo. They really are. You really have, you've got a, I mean, just a lot of fans by just putting those two in the same sentence. Uh, <laughs> so you, you started a simple Instagram page in 2018. Why? What was the moment where you decided, huh, I'm going to celebrate the Tadik in my life? Well, I mean, at home I do cook a lot and I used to make a lot of tadig and um, uh, I had so lots of pictures of it and I thought, okay, there's nothing out there that actually constantly posts pictures of uh, tadig. So I thought, okay, let's just do that. And before I've seen a lot of pages doing, I don't know, there was a page called Avocado on Toast and that, that person was just uploading uh, Avocado on Toast. And I was like, we can do the same for Tadig and I'm sure it's going to be more popular. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's how it started. And I just like reposted people's picture and uh, sometimes posted my own Tadig and it just grew. Um, so yeah, that's how we started. Let, let, let me uh, start by getting our definition straight. I know this can be somewhat controversial in our global community. What what, what do we consider real Tadik? Um, real Tadik. So I always describe Tadik uh, like when you cook your rice for a long period of time and low temperature, and you get that crispy bottom, and that's Tadik. And anything. Uh, could be tadig, any carbs. I mean, we do have lettuce tadig, kahu, but uh, any carb can become um, 
tadik. So yeah, you're not a tadik purist. You're not somebody who insists there has to be no bread or some bread or no, you know, this much salt or anything like that. You're you're open to people messing with their tadik recipes. Definitely, of course. I mean, yeah, that's the beauty of it. I think anything crispy, even like let's say lasagna, you know, the top gets like crunchy. I'll call that. Um, not tadig, but toptic, I would say, but, um, <laughs> yeah. When, when did you first learn that this, this, as I said uh, in the introduction, innocent uh, Instagram page that you started, although it sounds like you had a hunch this was going to be popular, when did you first learn that this was becoming something of a hit, that it was really catching on? Um, well, it was around, um, around January 2020, uh, that um, I started seeing that the, uh, the followers are growing. And in March, uh, I, uh, during the pandemic, I lost my job. And I thought, okay, let's make something out of this because I want to keep myself occupied. And that's how the live show started. And I thought, okay, in order to get more followers and make people engage with my page, I should have live shows because people are at home now and they want to cook for themselves. So that's how the live show started. And from there... Uh, I hit about six, seven thousand followers, and uh, the engagement rate was high. And people were like asking questions for how to make tagging, also tagging me in different po- posts. So I thought, okay, I can actually make this a business. So um, I started thinking about it around November, and I literally um, um, launched it a month after, just before Christmas, on the fourteenth of December. Let me get to the business side of this. But so, so tell tell people what what happens in the live shows. Uh, well, how um, I saw a lot of live shows on Instagram, and then I thought, okay, it's only one to one on Instagram. So I thought maybe I should do it, do more than one pe- one person, and have few people from different parts of the world and on YouTube because Instagram before then back then didn't have the option to have multiple people on your li- on your live. So um, I did it. I asked, uh, I connected people, and that's what I like to do. I mean, I'm a team builder. I like to you know connect. Uh, one person to another so fortunately we have a great community and people accepted my invitation my first show was amazing and went well i had three people on the show and uh, after that i invited uh, more people one was in la and what, what happens on the show do you actually make the tadik during during the live it, exactly so the show um yes so what happened was i would write a script actually we had a script for the show so it would go smoothly and you know people are more like you know engaged and not get bored so one person would be the main uh, they would make the main dish the other would either make the starter or dessert so um the main dish would have the would have tadik uh, and that's uh, how the, the sort of the theme of the show was now i i have to assume that you don't make tadik as fast as you speak because uh, the, <laughs> the whole the whole idea is patience, right? You have patience, to be patient. Exactly. I'm not I sure how my... somebody who, who operates at the speed you do has the patience to make tadik, but uh, that's great. Um, uh, it, it seems to be this site. What you're doing is a combination, as you mentioned earlier, of showcasing tadik that you make and also serving as as kind of an aggregate site for other Tadi creators to have their handiwork shown as well, right? 
Exactly. I mean, um, I actually created a mini, like a promo video for Tariq and showing that Tariq Lover it wants to become a platform for chefs around the world to bring them together, especially Persian and Middle Eastern, because what I thought that's happening, I mean, we always have this discussion every now and then that why is Persian food not globalized yet? Why is it not as mainstream as Italian? Right. I mean, there's so many factors to it from make, uh, being too long, uh, taking too long to make and, um, and not being able to make it look nice but there's so many great like talented chefs out there trying to do that trying to show persian food to the rest of the world and i thought okay um people are doing that and maybe there's another way to do that maybe there's a better way to do it so and that's how i started taddy lover and the kits and the bundles and and showing the you know the persian food the middle eastern the beauty of persian food through the mm, the crispiness the beauty of taddy now, it's interesting. I once asked the owner of a Persian restaurant in Los Angeles why, um, and he'd been around for a while. He'd had, he'd, we actually had one of the first uh, Persian restaurants in LA. And I said, why, why do you think it is that Persian food hasn't caught on as a staple, as a fast food phenomenon, the way Thai food has or sushi or something? And he said, mm-hmm. you know, people are interested in health conscious eating, especially, say, in California and Los Angeles. And the idea of Persian food is that it's too heavy, that it's too much, it's too rich in calories. Uh, And so a business person who's going for a quick lunch or wants fast food or wants to stay healthy is not going to choose Persian food. And I I was thinking of that in the context of Tadiq. And I was thinking that, you know, my impression of Tajik has always been that it's a guilty pleasure, that it's it's something that we savor, but we kind of know it's not really that good for us. Is there a healthy version of Tajik? Is it possible to make and eat Tajik and be health conscious? Or is it something, Is should we just let go of that idea and enjoy it while we can? Well, honestly, um, it um I don't think you can make tadik healthy because it needs oil and it needs to cook in oil for a long time. I mean, it's not deep fried, but still, when you cook cook something in oil for like an hour, then you won't consider that healthy. And I mean, me personally, I wouldn't know how to make it healthy or unless you use a healthy oil or healthy cooking oil, I would say that would make that make it healthy. Mm. Otherwise, um, I know I have the page and I have that I'm actually sort of advertising Teddy, but there isn't a way to make it healthy and yeah. <laughs> that's okay Honestly, that's okay yeah. there's an argument to say let's not worry about health 24 7 and enjoy some delicious cuisine what is the most adventurous uh version of tadik that you've come across either that you've made yourself or that somebody suggested to you or uh, sent you pictures of and um, adventurous i would say um well uh there are so many like beautifully made tadi like from potato and people like carve the potato and they make it look nice but one of the most creative one i would say uh i actually saw it somewhere and i made it myself with my pots was a uh, filo pastry baklava pastry and it was amazing it's like thin and golden it's just like it looks so good like so that was one of the wait i don't get it I where saw. where is the filo pa- i don't understand is that uh, the tadik is on top of that, or, or that is no, the tadik? No, so basically the bottom of, you, you uh, sort of cover the bottom of the pot with phyllo pastries, oh, wow. sheets of phyllo pastry, like I would say four, let's say, and then, you know, oil it with saffron, brush it with saffron and oil, and then put your rice on top of it, and then cook it, and then that wow. becomes like crispy, yeah. 
Wow. Okay. Um, and you've got now a Tadik Lover, a cookbook, you have pots, you have aprons, all kinds of merch. What are the most popular items? What are people gravitating towards? Uh, definitely the the kit and the bundle. Um, the bundle is the sort of the tachin um, garnish, which is pistachio almond and uh, dried barberries with ground, like ready to be used saffron and with brush and scoop and a pot with a cookbook so it's like the whole bundle and then like they buy it and they they go through the instruction and they can cook themselves touching or, or whatever is in the cookbook and uh that's very popular i would say um i mean 44 45 to 50 percent of my customers are non-iranians which is amazing and that was i was are non-iranians non-iranians uh -huh. yeah iranians yeah and, and uh, what do, what do the non-iranians tell you about loving tadiq Oh, they always come to me like they, they're either their, their, I don't know, their girlfriend, their boyfriend, their significant other is Iranian or they're just like non-Iranians. They have had tadig at a friend's house and they come to me, they're like, oh, I want to make one. How do I make one? And they, they, I, I recommend the bundle and there are so many people who come back to me with the pictures of Taddy they made with my cookbook and uh, they're just loving it. And it's great to see that non-Iranians are actually you know, coming to my website and trying to, you know, um, make an attempt to make Tadiq. Now, you know, we've had a few people on the, the show where they have like a, a popular website or a set, they've gotten sudden celebrity out of their Instagram or something like that. And I asked them, you know, to break down their audience for me. And I always feel a little bad. I'm like, you know, this person is not expected to be a, a data analyst, but you are a data analyst. So <laughs> so I'm assuming that you've gone through the analytics of, all, of your site and your Instagram channel and all that. Who is the audience and where are they? Um, that's a very great question. So my audience is, well, United States, California, and then I would say it would be England, uh, London, and then Germany, I have quite a lot of audience, and then Iran comes forth, which is good, because I'm aiming not to target Iranians in Iran. And, you know, it's, you know, not that I don't want them, obviously, on my page. It's just that because it's a business and I really want to sort of target non-Iranians outside of Iran. And uh, so that's the uh, statistics. And um, is there an age and gender? What's the age? Uh, yeah. So the age uh, for it's very interesting that I have like 65 percent women, 35 percent men. But the women are m much older. The average age for women is uh, older than the men so uh it's like goes for women goes towards like um 35 to 45 and for men is be from 18 to 25 which is very interesting <laughs> that is have, interesting yeah it is and i really i've been thinking about it like how how is that because i would say that young boys come to see the i don't know the asmr the crunchiness the videos i put and the women that they're you know uh, more mature or older i would say they're here to learn and cook but the young boys are just here for fun so that's how i or they're hungry the, the young men are just hungry <laughs> yeah yeah students <laughs> alone somewhere in their dorm <laughs> wanting taddy yeah <laughs> uh, that's actually the same uh, similar demographics to, to rook our our audience is about 62 percent female and but the, there's no age breakdown on the you know both females and males at 22 to 45 it's the main audience so um but it's very interesting the way it's breaking down for you i guess um, yeah, I'm very curious about that that young male thing. Why they're they're attaching to this? That's that's very curious. And you say the number one place is California. It is California and uh, then London. 
See, I love the fact that the center of the Tadiq lover empire uh, is not Iran. It's not Toronto. It's not LA uh, or even London, but a small town north of London <laughs> called Nottingham. I mean, do the locals know you're the queen of Tadiq? No, no, nobody knows. I mean, our like um, neighbors know what I'm doing because all the from all the orders that are going out of my house going to. They're like, what are those Iranians doing here? You know, (laughs) (laughs) people are actually at the post office are asking about like one of them like they she couldn't like hold it anymore. She was like, what do you have in these pots? So like it's going everywhere because honestly, I have customers in Ibiza, uh, um, Ibiza or Ibiza. They say Um, I have customers there in Menorca, Mallorca, Ibiza. And uh, to, uh, I don't know, to Qatar, Australia, New Zealand. It's crazy how the, 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 con- the continents that I've covered. It's amazing. And, and you don't, you're not um, going to move the, the center of business to some uh, metropolis. You, you're you going to stick by Nottingham. I mean, you're great for the local economy. It's good. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a big, com- uh, big uh, business now. So it, on, I'm working towards, I'm trying to sort of, uh, Amazon just approved me as a brand. So I'm trying to go on Amazon, Amazon oh. Prime for the UK-based people. And b- unfortunately for the sanction on, in America, I was planning to send pots to America and do it on Amazon, but they, they're not letting me because uh, the pots are Iranian. So um, Wait, that's the, po- the problem. Wait, the pots are made in Iran? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's the whole thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually, I have hired like two people in Iran, you know, for this job. And uh, I'm working with a, f- a manufacturer in, in Tehran and then goes to Esfahan. It gets lasered and, you know, the, the engraving and then mm. it gets posted to London. So they tr- th- these pots are traveling more than me, honestly. They <laughs> go from es- Tehran to Esfahan, Germany, Germany to London. And depending on the f- uh, wow. flight and... Um, to be honest, last time I imported the pots, I the, the headache you get. I mean, whenever you work with Iran, you have to be prepared. And uh, you can't make these pots in, in in like Sheffield or something. You have to go. To, <laughs> you have to. I mean, you're back to your roots in Esfahan, but uh, but do you really have to make, get them made in Iran? And that's the thing. I mean, I wanted to. Um, it's not easy to find somewhere here to manufacture at the moment because it is a big investment at the moment. It's the material that they use is. Uh, Iranian know better and um, it's, it's quite a good quality wow. so that's um, I'm actually not uh, it's it's not that bad at the moment it's good uh, and helping helping the economy in Iran in my city in Tehran and Esfahan so it's not that bad um, it's a very good it's a global endeavor listen I know you're a very good cook and it's no surprise that you're an entrepreneur who's having food related success because you actually this is I did not know this about you until this week where I got a, a chance to learn more about you 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 come from a a lineage that deals in popular cuisine tell me about your dad and the chain of restaurants he started in Esfahan and that now exist all over Iran yeah so my dad is a civil engineer and uh, when he was back in 1992 he opened his first pizza shop in Esfahan and uh, it was the first pizza shop making pizza in front of the customer and doing food uh, pizza delivery and from uh, designing the two level two story pizza oven to everything else he actually sort of engineered it and because he's an engineer as well so he drew the uh, the picture of the oven gave it to a manufacturer and they built it for him so it's um 
It started in 1992 and from Esfahan went to north of Iran, Rasht, and then Shiraz, and then lots of other places, Sanandaj, Kermanshah, Boucher, and uh, all of that, uh, those cities. And now we have, um, he has uh, 26 branches uh, in all over Iran. And it's a little system now. It's like the, I would say, always say dominoes of Iran. Uh, it's, uh, but I understand it's, a- it's, it's actually called Pizza Pizza, right? Yes, which yes. is funny because here in Canada we have a uh, a chain called Pizza Pizza, but it's not. I, I'm guessing it's not the same one. No, it's not. No, no. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, and you were saying, I think that uh, if one lives in Esfahan or knows Esfahan, they would they would probably know Pizza Pizza, right? In, in, your dad's, Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I have no doubt. I'm sure your uh, the, the um, listeners to this podcast would, would know Pizza Pizza after Esfani or even Rasht. Rasht is also very popular. So you, what you grew up in Esfahan, uh, as you say, your dad's a civil engineer. You come along in the mid nineties. He had already started the pizza empire uh, by the time you were born as a kid and yep. the, and through the, the late nineties. So so you grew up in and around the food business to a certain extent. Definitely, yes. Um, yeah, I've, I've been seeing my dad uh, managing and doing all the hard work for Pizza Pizza. So yeah, I've learned a lot from him, a lot. And at 14 years of age, your family picks up. Now, you were born in England, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, but right away your family had gone back and you were in Esfahan. Your family mm-hmm. picks up and returns to England. What were those uh, teenage years like for you when, as a Persian girl, you land in England, not in London, or <laughs> but, but in Nottingham? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say I would never want to go back to those years and uh, I didn't like it at all. I didn't enjoy a single day. Uh, it was very difficult, especially coming from Iran, a third world country, which schools are not mixed. You're only with girls and uh, it's very different. And you, 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 I was fluent in fart. I mean, I wasn't fluent in English. Uh, I, I could read, but sitting in, let's say, a Shakespeare class in English language, I mean, I, w- I couldn't understand anything. And uh, so only my maths and my sciences helped me to get through the years uh, because obviously you're, uh, you're, you're when you're coming from Iran you're advanced compared to them uh, in England um, well it was very difficult I mean from uh, getting bullied I was the only international student there I mean people there and um, they never had a non-English person in their school wow. all of that uh, didn't they, they gave me hard times and um, but yeah it's all, all over now and I'm here. So you guys were the only Iranians around for miles. It sounds like. Were, were you? Uh, well, uh, not um, at school. Um, we had uh, obviously we had like uh, non-English people, but obviously they were born here, and then and English was their first language, and they could have conversation and all of that helped them to get through school years. And um, for me, it was different. Uh, I wasn't English and I didn't know any any English <laughs> uh, to actually make friends or communicate with people. And and your dad didn't give up the the pizza chain empire, right? He he, oh, no, no, he no, runs no. it from yeah. Nottingham. He does, yes. I mean, as I said, it's like um, Domino's Pizza, let's say, the owner, the person who founded it, it, they're not like at Domino's branches uh, uh, every day. Are they also uh, in Nottingham uh, running Domino's from there? Exactly. So you see, we do have restaurants in England uh, in our uh, 
town as well. But uh, yeah, he he calls obviously. He checks on the business, and the, um, because of pandemic, he couldn't go to Iran. But he does go to Iran every three months to check on everything and have meetings. Get get all the managers together. Uh, but it can run without my dad being there for like uh, six months. Let's say. By the way, is the pizza 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 in uh, Esfahan like a like Western pizza, like the same kind of stuff you get at Domino's? Or? Uh, yes, we do have like um, deep dish, as they say, American style, and we also have like thin crust. Um, so yeah, both. You you end up going to university for mm-hmm. I guess computer science, and you become a data analyst. Uh, you have a very interesting life, Sahar, for somebody who's still in her 20s. I mean, how did you become the only woman working as an analyst for the English Premier League at such a young age? Um, to be honest, I've had so many people contacting me, so many young people asking me to help them th- for, to get to this field. Um, well, I was approached by uh, a re- data analyst recruiter, and they said they, they are looking for a data analyst. And... Um, I, I, how can I say that? I mean, I, I think I presented myself well at the, at the interview, you know, the analysis I did, um, it was good enough for them to choose me. Um, so I, it's just, uh, I would say luck and big being good at what I, what I did at the age of 22. I was 23, sorry, uh, when I did the interview. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would say, luck is most part of it so when you're doing the data analysis or data analysis i'm never sure which way to say that word people (laughs) use both versions of it uh i'm guessing i i want to know exactly what you do so is it uh, i mean as an avid football fan soccer fan myself uh you know we get all kinds of statistics right we get shots on goal or how many minutes somebody played on the field or the, the size of the field or you know what what the goaltenders average saves are is that the kind of data that you're crunching I did have uh, access to those, and I used it. For example, one of the things we, uh, one of the projects or the uh, data I was working on was how many minutes the ball was in play or ball in play, and you would sort of because. Premier League is kind of a comp- one of the most competitive leagues amongst the five. It's um, it's very important for them to have to have a, a good uh, amount of time ball being on the in the pitch and players playing the game and not just being out. Uh, so less time wasted. So that was one of the data I worked on. And then uh, obviously, let's say when it's like Chelsea, um, Man City or Man City versus Liverpool, the number of the amount of time the ball is in play is higher than Crystal Palace Wolves or not Wolves. I like Wolves. <laughs> Crystal Palace Fulham. So um, yeah. And then um, number of uh the referee data as well, how, how referees are performing. That's one of that is that's one of one of the data I worked on. And uh, and then what? Do not, you 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 work for you were working for the league or for a specific for team? The le- and no, for the league itself. Oh, so the so what does that league, what does the league do with that data? So the league. Uh, so that's for the Premier League itself because it's basically these are the business. I would say the business side of the Premier League because Premier League needs to know how well are they doing right. at a match um, uh, on a match day. So um, uh, the the data itself, the Premier League captures it, and then it gives access. Uh, it gives them to the uh, clubs, and clubs they have their own performance analysts. Let's say Liverpool has got its own analyst, United has got its own analyst, and they use data and uh, connect it to them their own softwares and to analyze it where, where however they want. 
So that's how it works. And my job, apart from being an analyst and doing all the geeky stuff and coding, it was also supporting the analysts at the clubs. And let's say I would visit the stadiums when they get promoted right. and check the analyst position, let's say, and how, how it uh, how it is. I do a survey and ask other analysts about uh, their away team's uh, position or their home team position, all of that. So uh, that was also my job, which was the coolest part of the job, you know, visiting stadiums. Well, you, being able you, you know, I have to say my excitement at uh, getting to speak to you uh, turned rapidly into bitter anger and jealousy <laughs> when I found out that you you spend a lot of time or you spent a lot of time at Arsenal games for some I reason, did, right? I did. At, at Emirates, what were you doing at the Arsenal games? There was some. I mean, once was like uh, we went there as a team just to watch a game and have a night out, uh, you know. Um, and spend time with the team. The other one was we took guests there to show them around and also, again, welcome them to London. And then a few was just to visit the uh, analyst positions and check the cameras and just you all just that so that's i mean i think it's because of the easy the accessibility of arsenal uh, stadium we right you're in we, london right right yeah wow lucky and but and yet your favorite team is wolverhampton you said right i um yes um i do like wolves i mean when they got promoted and i went to the stadium i really like the people there the analysts and how uh, um, they were so organized and uh, uh, everything was on point. And uh, actually, <laughs> so the other teams are not as organized when it comes no, no, to data. No, no, not that. It's just like not or not organized, but they were just when when we went into the office, they had the map of the stadium showing us where the position, the analyst position will be. This is where they're gonna when it's gonna be and uh, how big it is and all of that. It was so detailed. They had it ready. I mean, not every stadium has that uh, because I worked with them. And also, um, yeah, and when I when I left the stadium was like they're gonna do well this season and they did <laughs> well coming from a data analyst we would you would need to know that you would need to be able to tell us that um <laughs> you're still working in data analysis by day although not for the epl uh tadik queen by night can you <laughs> can can you see yourself giving up the day job to only focus on tadik lover anytime soon uh, yeah, definitely. I do. I do want to make that full time job. I do want to make the Taddy Glover uh, brand a go to brand for uh, you know Persian cuisine and Middle Eastern cuisine. Uh, I wanted to make it so popular that people come to me for you know the, the unique you know handmade products uh, for making uh, food and Persian food. So I, that's the goal that I have to make it a, a very big. And um, hope hopefully um, uh, step into my dad's shoes and then um, open a restaurant, a Tadi restaurant. But uh, yeah, at the moment um, I'm just uh, working on it, growing it, and also working as a consultant on the side. And yeah, your dad's got to be really proud of Tadi Clever, huh? <laughs> he is actually. I mean, they, they were, um, you know, they were a bit hesitant to be honest at the beginning when I started the kit. But then I sold out within two days of launching it, and then my pots came, and I sold out the pots, and uh, you know the customers coming from all over the world. So they are surprised, actually. They are very hmm. surprised. I, uh, I, I mean, I have no doubt you're going to be really successful with this. It's, it's obvious. It's clear. Some people you can just tell. I mean, you've got you know, what it takes, and and uh, I'm ordering my Taddy Glover apron as soon as this interview is over. Um, <laughs> Thank you. What a final question to you. What is the most important? trick what is the most important element to making great tadik <laughs> well uh, there are a few things there's on, not on, not just one thing i would say for the best result to have the 
the fluffy, you know, uh, good um, delicious rice as well as the crispiness you need to i always say soak your rice for at least a night definitely and then overnight uh, you won't accept the one hour we need to no soak it never overnight. honestly you won't get the good rice you oh. might get the crispy tatty but you wouldn't get it wouldn't be as nice as when it's like soaked for over for like a, eight hours i mean at least at least six hours i would say okay and that's the most important part and also uh low temperature and patience one hour and 15 minutes definitely is it that's like very precise but yeah will you accept a tadik that's been made in a polo pass you can make a good tadik in polo pass but uh, 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 there's a trick to that as well i mean i wouldn't it, you can't make it like you can't just put the rice with water and then let it cook because you get a tadi, you get a crispiness but if you want that golden cross golden um, crispiness you won't right. get it with right. just putting the rice there water and then cook there's it there's no cheating there's no there's no, no there's no fast route <laughs> despite no fast route despite, despite the speed of your speech there's no <laughs> fast route to good tadi. Yeah. Uh Saharjan it is a pleasure to talk to you thank you for doing this congratulations on your success with Tadik Lover uh, and uh, and and wolves and and, and Wolverhampton, <laughs> and uh, I will look forward to talking to you again and seeing uh, Taddy Glover grow and spreading the word. Thank you so much, John John. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Hi to England. Khadafis. Bye bye. Bye bye. Sahar Fatemi, the founder and force behind TaddyLover.com. She's an Iranian British data analyst, cook. An entrepreneur, Sahar Fatemi, joined us from Nottingham, England today. All right. Microphone's back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shaya, and the fabulous Keon before we get to Barmak, Talekani, and our letters. Uh, some thoughts on Sahar. I very much enjoyed that. Boy, she speaks fast. <laughs> I felt like uh, I need to speed up to, to meet her. And then I was like, you know, actually, maybe if I just try and slow her down, I can imagine how successful she is going to be. Mm-hmm. You could just feel, mm-hmm. you know, she already is, but you can feel the speed with yeah. which she does things. Captain Reza? I'm just hungry. <laughs> I'm oh, I know. This is the most delicious interview ever. <laughs> My thoughts exactly. You right. know, we just, you, we can't, you can take the boy out of Tadik <laughs> land, but you can't take the Tadik yeah. out of the boy. Have you yeah. ever had a Tadik burger? Like the, the two Tadiks squeeze. Like with tadik squeezing inside? A, yeah. Oh, no, wow. like, like a burger in between oh, two tadiks. You used the tadik as yeah. the bun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw it on her Instagram, and I think she used kubide and the good and the yeah. tomatoes for, as uh, instead of uh, like a burger, like did, as the meat. Oh. Oh, the okay, let's stop the show now. <laughs> <laughs> Go to Shatar Abbas. <laughs> I don't think they offer that. No, they don't actually uh, tadik. Yeah. And I gave them a shout out there. <laughs> Should have picked a restaurant that uh, offers the yeah. tadik. I remember when we had the concerts in Isfahan, mm-hmm. our manager always, he said that, let's go to pizza. Pizza, pizza. pizza. Yeah. I loved that because mm-hmm. I thought what th- there was a split second. Now, those of you who are listening to us in Canada right now know, I can't, I mean, pizza, pizza is a standard, uh, you know, mm-hmm. of, of Canadian pizza joints. I mean, it's a, and funny enough, a lot of the franchises are actually run by Iranians mm-hmm. <laughs> in the true, last few years. Actually, you know, yeah. you go to pizza, pizza, you usually yeah, can Iranian order it in man. Farsi. Yeah. But, uh, 
but there was a split second where I was like, wait, her dad is Pete? And then I realized that there's a pizza pizza version in Iran that is, I guess, different from the Canadian. And it was delicious. Mm. It was Sounds delicious. like it. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it. If they got, got the 27 restaurants, then yeah. it's got to be... Uh, uh, well, it was great to speak to Sahar Fatimi uh, and check out, once again, check out Tadik Lover. Uh, now, we're going to get to uh, letters after our next guest, right, Keon? That's right. All right, yeah. well, stick around for that. Let's get to our next guest. Uh, there's an old stereotype about every boy growing up wanting to be an astronaut. And of course, that's a generalization and not the truth. But it is true that a lot of kids do dream of being a pilot and maybe even working for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or as it's more simply known, NASA. My next guest is an Iranian-American who parlayed his mechanical engineering and systems engineering degrees into some work with the Army that has led to a strong and long career at NASA as a project manager. In fact, his current position is to develop technologies that can assist NASA to pioneer the future of space exploration. Barbak Talikani was born in Tehran, moved to the United States with his family in the midst of the revolution in 1979. He was 16 at the time. He first moved to Massachusetts, then went on to study at Northeastern and George Washington University. He is a certified project manager and has written for numerous technical publications in the field of structures and materials. As a deputy project manager, Barmack led the development of the Ascent Abort Crew Module and Separation Ring that was attached to the launch abort system and powered by a modified miniature four first stage rocket that was successfully tested in July of 2019. This was part of the NASA Orion project. He currently leads the development of a lunar crane that can assist astronauts in offloading payloads from the lander to lunar surface. I will ask him what all of that means, but first, let me introduce the man. Barmak Talikani joins me from the home of NASA Langley Research Center, Hampton, Virginia today. Hello, sir. Hello, Gian. How are you? Very nice to have you on the program. Thank you for taking some time away from NASA to speak to us. Thank you. It's nice to be here with you. You are working uh, at the most American of institutions. I mean, I can't think, is there a more American brand than NASA? But you've said it's quite diverse in your workplace. And in fact, there are a lot of people of Iranian descent. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the population that works at NASA Langi is very diverse. I don't know if you know, but there are nine other Iranians that are work currently at NASA Langley and doing variety of research and, and helping NASA to reach their goals. So yes, it is a very, very diverse population. So the future of space exploration is actually in the hands of Iranian Americans. <laughs> Uh, some, yes, that is true. <laughs> it's good to hear. <laughs> and it. others, yes. Uh, you, you, you've talked about contributing to um, the future of human existence. If you don't mind me zooming out to begin this interview, uh, 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 the future of human existence, this, this being why working at NASA has been so fundamental for you. You've said at some point this Earth will not be enough. We will have to expand out. Can you talk about what you mean by that and why you value the work uh, NASA is doing and, th and that you're part of? Okay, so let me start by saying that uh, NASA has made major contributions to the world, such as uh, satellites, telecommunications, GPS, remote sensing, and uh, weather satellites that can really look at the Earth and uh, be able to 
take this imagery and really look at the health of the land on Earth. But as you know, we are a finite planet. So there is resources that we are using, and those resources at some point will be depleted. So uh, humans need to find other places within the space to, to be able to either immigrate there or move there so that they can use those resources for their existence. And this is only natural. This is what's going to happen in not in my lifetime, but in short future. So, yeah. You feel I mean, like it's, it's a, you feel like it's inevitable that we have it to. It is inevitable. I mean, and I give you a very good example. Um, you know, Iran is really running out of the water that they have, uh-huh. and they're going to face drought. So, what are they going to do? Are they going to move to another country? Highly doubtful. Are they going to be able to develop water in Iran? I don't know. I don't, again, it's doubtful that they can do that. So that just gives you an example of how resources are getting depleted. And I'm I'm mentioning Iran because everybody's familiar with the Iran's geography and and the resources that they have available to them. But you so, yes. you, you would include in this category things like overpopulation and climate change and you absolutely, know, yeah, absolutely. Those are part of it. Those are contributors that that will make us uh, look other places, look at other places to to move to and keep our existence in, as humans and to be able to leave. So so you've you've in terms of getting into the, the work that the specifics of what you do. You have, I think, quite modestly said that the reason you have visibility, the, the reason you'd be on our radar, for example, is that you are a project manager. So you're the public face in a lot of cases of these these projects and that there are many others doing more important work. Uh, well, it's no small feat to be leading these projects. What can you tell us about this lunar crane endeavor? This is your current project. Yeah, can can you is, explain in, in very simple terms what, what you're working on? Yes, absolutely. So we are trying to develop a lunar crane, which will help astronauts to move payloads from one location to another. And this is not just extend to that uh, Lunar crane is effectively a very, it's like a Swiss army knife. So if you change the end effector at the end of this crane, if you put variety of tools, it can do variety of operations, Mm -hmm. such as excavating, maybe they can deploy structures. Uh, So there, there are many functions to this. But right now, for the initial technology demonstration of this capability, we are looking at doing a demonstration with a lunar lander. And uh, what I'm talking about is, imagine uh, the lunar lander that lands on the surface of the moon. We will be sort of integrated on top of this lander. And there are payloads that are located on top of this lander. And lunar crane can help and assist in picking those payloads up and moving it down to the surface. Okay, see, even, you see, even in that uh, two minutes, you, you, you say things oh, I that I, I need to, okay. I need explanation. What are payloads? Okay. okay, payloads could be anything that are being used on moon. So payload could be consumables. Payload could be an antenna that they want to put down. Uh, payload could be radars or things that would help in communication while you're up there and you're habitating the moon. Payload could be the habitats 
where astronauts can live in it. So how do they currently move the payloads from the lander to the lunar surface? Uh, there is no lander on the lunar surface at the current time. We haven't done that. Uh-huh. So, uh, but if you look at in 1960s, you know, they had a, they didn't use a lunar crane, but if you remember, they used to have a vehicle that, that actually was brought up by a lander and the astronauts used it to, to sort of go around the moon with it. Uh-huh. So that to me is a payload. That was your payload. The vehicle was the payload. This is probably a stupid question, but how, how does the lunar crane get <laughs> get on the moon so that it can pick up the payloads off the well, off of the course lander? It's gonna, yeah, so it's going to be integrated into the lander, and when they get launched to go to the moon, that lander and the uh, lunar crane that is integrated into it will land down on the surface. So, um, so are the, the mecha- are the mechanics of it? I keep thinking of those. Remember that game as a as a kid at the arcade that you put a quarter in, and there's a there's kind of an arm with like right, a exactly. and it's picking exactly. up toys. You know, you try to pick yeah. up toys with it. It's it, yeah, it looks- that, that's a fantastic uh, <laughs> example of what this lunar cranes uh, will be able to do. So that's what we're looking at for the first phase. And what is the challenge? What makes this a difficult thing to be building? It's, I, I never said it's difficult. Um, actually, the structure is very simple structure. It's not as complex as, as Ascent Abort was. But it is something that uh, NASA uh, realizes that's, uh, that would be an important tool to have while you are going to colonize the moon. Because you need to move things around. You can't just drop things in one location and hope that they will move by themselves. So they need to have a a robot or something like Lunar Crane to to be able to do that for you. You know, it only makes sense that, I mean, a very superficial thought of NASA, uh, given that I've never researched it, you know, other than when I do these kind of interviews, uh, you know, you think of it as kind of a monolith, and it's not at all a monolith. There's all these different parts, I guess, departments that have to build all the different requirements. for. So how many people, for example, are working simply on this lunar crane right now? Uh, so this is our first year, but the average number of people that will be working to through the life cycle of this would be probably 20 per year. Uh, and those are a variety of skills with different expertise that can help us build this and get us to the to where we want to be. So yeah, it's a very collaborative effort, and this is by no means a big project. This is a very small project, but uh, there are a number of people that will contribute to this. You know, I, so, I, I know I'm. Um putting you through the the ringer to have to speak to us like we're kids for those of us who don't don't understand this stuff but i can hear i can hear the enthusiasm in your voice and this is um i kind of love the story i mean you're born in iran and and you've said that you always wanted to to get into space and aeronautics if if not to be a pilot yourself and you have a very vivid memory uh of 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 being a kid and being awestruck at the idea of being a pilot, you were with your uncle at Mehrabad Airport. Yeah, Can you yeah. tell that story? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we were going to fetch my mom that was flying back from U.S. from Mehrabad, and my uncle picked my brother and myself, and we went to the airport. And I don't know if you remember, but Mehrabad Airport had a balcony. You could actually go and stand on the balcony and see the plane either land. I would or have take. never been there, so I don't remember. Never been there. Okay. <laughs> I so, mean, maybe I flew in as a kid right, once, but so I don't know. Take my yeah. words for it. 
<laughs> but essentially, uh, there was a 747 parked on the side, and I think they were getting it ready for, for the trip to some some point of uh, in the world. I guess it was uh, U.S. But uh, in any case, he he called us over and he pointed to that and said, hey, guys, look at that plane. That plane is a 747 Boeing that has two floors. It's not one single floor. There are two floors to it. That really took me by surprise. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it was just like, my God, a plane can have two floors in it. That yeah. That is amazing. It's a city by itself. So I really, at that point, I was just captured by it. And I said, I really wanted to be a pilot, to be in that environment, to see that multi-floor plane. So it was always my dream to be a pilot. Uh, and I think that was an extension of me getting into NASA, yes. although I haven't done much flying. So, well, your your, your dad was an engineer, right? Was it was, yes, was yes. it always a given that you were somehow in one way or another going into engineering? And no, at first I never wanted to be an engineer, but at some point, yeah, my parents were very keen on me becoming an engineer. And you know how Iranians are and what their expectations are. They are my parents, so yeah, my brother was studying engineering, so. I myself decided to take my path into engineering as well. What do you, um, uh, Barmak, what do, what do you remember about being a teenager in Iran as the revolution drew closer in the, the late 1970s? Yeah, it was a tumultuous time in Iran. Everything was closed. The schools were not really open. Majority of the kids my age uh, were, were going to downtown to sort of see what's going on and go to movies or, you know, we the, the life was very easy going at that time for us, even though there was a, there was a storm coming through. Um, but it was, it was interesting because I, I highly doubt many people have gone through a revolution and seeing a change in your country that forces you to leave. That itself has a big impact on people. So I was fortunate, I don't know if I should say I was fortunate or unfortunate to be there in the midst of revolution, but it was exciting and we had a lot of fun. But my time- well, you, was Sorry, not, you had fun? I did, I did. Uh -huh. I mean, no school at that time. Uh -huh, I, I see, didn't go right, to school. right. So you know how we are as teenagers. We right. like to spend time with our friends. We like to go here, there, you know. It, it was really, really right. Uh, you're, you're as a fifteen-year-old as this is coming on. You're, you're not thinking about the possibility that there's going to be a regime change and executions no, and all. No, you're, you're no, just thinking, no, right, no. right, right. So for us, uh, we were at ease and we were just taking as it comes. Uh, by the way, I have to point out that I didn't spend majority of my time going to these demonstrations. I was working at a stable. Uh, Shaki's stable because I was also interested on horseback riding oh. and actually I went far in uh, developing my my skills in horseback riding and I had a huge responsibility at that time to take the horses I was at that time I was 14 and I was responsible for taking the horses to the races in Farahabad and making sure that everything is checked before they would uh, move to to go on to the racetrack. So it was really interesting for me. That was probably the most interesting time of my life. However, I gave a lot of heartache to my parents because during that time, I don't know if you know, but at six o'clock, nobody could 
walk out. So it, it was difficult. I would leave late at night, would come to the city, and there was nobody on the city. I couldn't find a bus to get home, and there were soldiers all over the place. So well, the horses were also. Uh innocently unaware of that there was a revolution yes, happening. Yes, exactly, exactly. You, you guys leave quite dramatically in October of 1979. I say dramatic because when I found out that you left in October of 79, I have to think that that would have been close to when they were closing the borders and the airports, was it not? Yes, yes. Actually, you're right. Two weeks after we left Iran, they sort of closed the borders. But my immigrating to U.S. was very, very easy and uh, I, I wish that I could sit here and tell you uh, really terrible stories about me going through the mountains and getting uh, having problems with uh, with countries that I go to. But that was not the case for me. You got out in and time, it sounds like. I, we did, yeah, yeah. we did. And was very fortunate that my mom uh, was applying for our green card. And when we went to the uh, embassy, we were faced with four different files for each of the family members. So we all received our green card, and that's how we came to. By the way, why US. did you? Why was the decision made to leave? <laughs> the decision was always there that they wanted us to move to U.S. even themselves, but the conditions on the ground uh, forced them to make this decision right. more quickly and suddenly because we really needed to go. They were worried about the school. They were worried about the situation, so they wanted us to get out as soon as possible. You know, when you when you come to America, you've um, I really think you have an interesting take on this. You've told me, you've told me how hard it was to be in high school in Massachusetts in the time of the uh, hostage crisis and the post revolutionary tension between Iran and the United States when you first arrived. But you've also said that it was the actions of some people around you that made you believe in America forever. Uh, let's take that one part at a time, if you will, to explain to folks. First, sure. first of all, the first part, how hard did it get? Would would you get made fun of? Would you be challenged to fights? What, what was happening well, as a high school kid who arrives from Iran in the middle of a hostage crisis and revolution? Yeah, it, it was difficult and was very hostile. Not everybody was like that. I, I want to clarify that. But there were situations that I, I was in where I was assaulted or or was told to get out or go away. So there were there were some difficult situations. But I'd like to put those aside because I had a very good support system. I was really amazed by this because the school that I went to with my brother, we had teachers that really cared about our safety and really cared about the culture that we came from. They were interested to find out about you. So not only they were the support system for us, but the friends that we made didn't extend just to the friendship that we had with them, but their family was very interested on knowing where we came from and what the situation is in Iran. And the more you talked about it, the more they understood that it's not your fault. You know, this is not something that uh, you caused. You are just a product of this situation and you're trying to get away from that. So you know, I lived in Plymouth, Massachusetts, with, and I had a great support system. These people were kind, nice. They would check up on us and they would make sure that we would be safe and we are safe mm -hmm. and even my teachers would put extra time out of their day to go through the courses 
where we had difficulties in because our English, we thought our English is very good, but when we came here, <laughs> uh, we faced the reality that really, you really need to refine your English and learn more. And because of that, some of the courses were very difficult. And those teachers stood after school on their own time to to help us go through it so it's very hardening. I, it's a very hardening yeah. thing to hear especially because yeah. so many stories are, are are so much more negative what about the way you felt did you were you scared did you feel was it apparent to you that you're different from everybody else or or, or did yeah, the process I of mean, assimilation happen naturally for you yeah 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 i i felt that maybe the first year but i have to tell you within all the countries in the world u.s is the only country that I know of that you can assimilate really quickly. And once you assimilate in it, it's you you are part of it. Uh, you can't be separated from it. Uh, I know in Europe there is some difficulties in assimilation into the population. Even though if you become a citizen, you're not necessarily considered one of them. In U.S., we are considered one of them. I And I don't know about Canada as well, but... Uh, but here, uh, assimilation is really easy, and uh, that that is one thing that I really love about U.S. This was true in the past. I think the political environment is changing a little bit. Let and, me let me get to that. I did, uh, by yeah. the way, uh, by the way, I think Canada is generally considered a good place for immigrants, although we have good. our issues as well, of course. But uh, I want to just ask you, but there's a story um, that I thought was quite beautiful in the first days of of school uh, in your high school. There's a history class, and you didn't you didn't want anybody to know you were Iranian. Your yeah. teacher actually calls you out, but it's, it it right. turns out more beautiful than it sounds. Go go ahead and tell that story. Yes, yes. So uh, uh, this was the first day of our school, and I just want to set the stage here. Prior to that, we had a lot of discussion with the principal. Uh, because of the uh, time, because of the hostage crisis, we asked that not to be uh, identified as Iranians. And so they were trying to sort of consider our safety. And I think he did. Uh, uh, but the first class that we had with my brother was a history class. So we walked into the class and suddenly uh, my history teacher, who became one of the most advocate for us, very, she was very supportive of everything that we did, uh, sort of said to the students, let's make a circle. We have new students in our class, and these guys are from Iran, and you know the situation of Iran. And so before going into discussions, she made sure to point out that, you know, the situation in Iran is not of any of their results. It's not caused by them so we need to be respectful and we need to understand where they're coming from and they have the same aspirations and and the same feelings as you guys do so let's keep this clean and and be respective and that was my first experience in a class so the kids started asking different questions uh, about iran about us so it was a it was a good starting point i thought uh uh, so I love you know. that story. I, I love that story. You, you you know you have said and you just intimated, uh, you just re referenced it there a second ago. You, you've told me that immigration is close to your heart. Um, you talk about just now how uh, coming to a country that was very welcoming has uh, made you believe in America. But you've also said that has changed now, and you're afraid that you're going in the wrong direction in the United States. Can you talk about how you worry about America headed in the wrong direction when it comes to immigration? 
Yeah, I think uh, when I came to U.S., immigration was was considered a positive thing. The view from America was that the immigrants can contribute a lot to to the society of uh, United States. Unfortunately, because of the political atmosphere that we had for the past four years and the fear mongering that was spewed out, this philosophy has changed. So. I don't think United States really values immigrants as they did when I moved here. And immigration is important to me because I'm an immigrant and I know how I contributed to this society because they gave me that opportunity to do so. And I think the environment is ripe for immigrants to come to U.S. and contribute just as much as me and other Iranians here uh, who who are successful and are working towards developing things that will help all all the society as a whole. So my view has changed, and I'm really dissatisfied with the way that this this is going. I'm just hoping that there, there would be a point that these views will turn around and we really think positively about immigration. I think for a good example of it is I just heard Canada really values immigration and they want immigrants to to move to Canada. I just wish that U.S. had the same attitude towards the immigration as as countries like Canada do. Well, again, no population is a monolith. We have uh, anti-immigration folks in Canada as well, and I'm sure you, I know you have a lot of pro-immigration folks in in, in the United States, so yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a pendulum that swings, and I, I hear you on the last four years. Speaking of which, I mean, your parents returned to Iran not long after you moved uh, to, to uh, the United States back in the late 70s, early 80s, and as I understand it, they've never wanted to come and live in the West. Why? Let me set the stage up on this one. (laughs) So uh, my parents wanted to move to U.S., but I think because of the situation, when my dad and my mom moved here with us, my dad found himself not having too many friends. He didn't speak the language really well. So uh, he was very isolated, I think, and he wanted his familiarity was the culture of Iran. And also, because of the Iran-Iraq war, he was very concerned about the the house and his life back in Iran. So they moved back to take care of that. They did come to U.S. after that to visit. But since all this has occurred and they're going up on age, they are not really interested on in coming to U.S. However, we meet each other once a year and... We were able to to socialize and see each other, which is great for us. Have you had any temptation to go back to Iran and live there? Uh, I do. I really love to go back. The last time I was there was 2008, which I had a blast. But I don't think it's a right time for me to to go to Iran because essentially if something happens it's not just you it extends into the family and yeah. gets them involved and is working is, at is, is working at NASA a liability of sorts I, I don't know I don't know but uh-huh. who knows you know would you I, ever I would you ever want to live in Iran again no I I don't think I can live in Iran because it's funny you ask that you know even the few times that I've returned back to Iran I always felt 
out of place. I don't know why. I was really, it, it's just strange that the way I feel when I go back to Iran. No, I don't think I would live there. Not at all. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, this, you have such a success story of someone who came here and, and, has reached the pinnacle of the aeronautics world, NASA. I know you applied several times after university before you got this gig at NASA. And you were, had been working as an engineer in Massachusetts. When you first started at NASA, what I suppose what surprised you most? What were your impressions of what was it going to be? What it was going to be like, and and how was it different? That's a great question. I came from a army environment where it's very hierarchical. Okay. In NASA, they value your opinion. You have a voice. You you will be able to express your opinion, and that opinion, if it's if it's good, will be implemented. Unlike Army, Army is it was very hierarchical at the time that I worked with them. So it was their way or highway. It was not a really collaborative environment. It was difficult working for Army. And I don't have too many good memories about it. But Army was a vehicle for me to get into NASA because, uh, you know, I tried to apply to NASA while I was working for Army. I was rejected once by Marshall Space Flight Center. But, you know, because that base that I was working was going through a closure under base realignment and closure, uh, we were able to... Uh, be picked by there was a group of 16 of us that were moved to NASA Langi. There was an army group there that was working on rotorcraft. Uh, although when I came to NASA Langley at that time under army, I always worked on NASA projects. But essentially, it put me in an environment that I could show what my capabilities are, what I can do for them, and how I can contribute. And that essentially pushed me was able to uh, be hired by them. What do you What do you think the future of space travel is? Are you Are you optimistic? Do you Do you see folks like Elon Musk and SpaceX as a challenge to the future of NASA or healthy competition? Or where Where are we at? No, I don't think he's a challenge to to NASA. I think he's he's contributing to NASA. What I worry about is the skill set uh, that or the skills that we use by giving these contracts to private industry. However, government is not an efficient organization. There are bureaucracy involved. So that makes it sort of inefficient. But these private industries are much more efficient to to get where the NASA's goal is. Where the goal is to go to the moon. Uh, the goal is to go to the Mars. And we the budget that is required for that uh, is not enough for NASA by itself to do it. So when you have private industries that are much more efficient on on uh, accounting for their money and how they're spending it, how they're sort of implementing programs and projects and how they're executing it, they are more successful in it than we are. Uh, so no, I don't think they are they are competing with us. They are helping us, but again. I emphasize the skills that we lose can affect NASA in the near future. But if the if the space race, as it was called, reached its zenith in terms of 
uh, enthusiasm of people around the world in terms of funding, in terms of the dream of, of space that uh, captured the imagination of populations in the 1960s uh, and then sort of fell apart to a certain extent along with the Cold War. Do you see that enthusiasm returning? Yeah, I, I, I think th- there is a huge interest on space because going to space will create opportunities for for in private industry in specific to develop their technologies to make money on that technology so yeah the enthusiasm is there uh, i think everybody is very interested to see if we can ever get to mars because mars really replicates earth it would be interesting to see how we can colonize mars i mean right now that that is the biggest dream for for nasa and all the private industries such as elon musk so you know we just have to wait and see where this will take us but to a certain extent it depends on public funding and public funding depends Uh, on depends on the 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 population being you know enthusiastic enough to, to want their money spent on this right Exactly. That's why we, the funding is not there for NASA to do it by itself. So it needs partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, during 60s, well, when you brought that up, 60s, the funding that went to NASA at that time was, uh, I think, $2 billion, which if you convert it to dollar at this time is around $25 billion. And you only wanted to get to the moon. There was no other programs. Everything, all the energy, all the dollars, all the effort went into that. Now, NASA is involved in many projects, like, for example, James Webb Telescope is costed around $9 billion. That, uh, when your budget is $24 billion a year and $9 billion going to one project, and we have few of these, it really drains the budget for exploration. So you can do what you did in 60s because your focus is not on one thing. Your focus is on variety of things. So that is why it is wise to have private industry involved to get us there. Uh, This is just a reality at this point. It's so very good to talk to you. I very, I, I, I've enjoyed this, and I enjoy your insights. A final question, if you will. What? Yes. What would be your? I mean, thinking about you back at Mehrabad Airport. <laughs> what What would be your advice to a kid watching flights take off and dreaming of getting into aeronautics and working at NASA one day? Yeah, don't ever give up on your dream. Just work hard and and have that focus that you want to get there, and you will get there. I remember my father always used to say. You have to shoot for, your dream should be very high. You have to shoot for that. That will make you get close to it. You might not get to it, but you get close to it. So I, I advise everybody that if you have a dream, follow it. I know there's challenges, difficulties in the, in, in the way to get there. But if you focus on that, all those challenges can be defeated and you, you, can, you can get there. Barmak Talgani, I I thank you for this today. Merci. Oh, thank you, Gian. I appreciate your time, and it was a pleasure for talking with you about this. To be continued. To be continued. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Barmak Talgani, a NASA project manager who develops technologies that can aid in the future of space exploration. He currently leads the development of a lunar crane that can assist astronauts in offloading payloads from the lander to lunar surface. 
Barmak Talagani joined me from the home of the NASA Langley Research Center, Hampton, Virginia, today. Back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and the fabulous Keon, Barmak Talakani. I very much uh, appreciated. I, I feel like I learned a lot in that conversation. I, I now know what a lunar crane is. I know what uh, payloads are. Are you going to retain all that? I understand the launch abort system. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will that retain that. Technical. Did you know? Did you do you feel like you learned a lot during I that? I felt like a lot of it went over my head, oh. but uh, but yeah, man, mm. it's not easy going out in space. Yeah, he's not in space. He's in, in No, Virginia. but he's the man that's <laughs> helping people get do out. Do you even listen space. to the interview? Yes, I did. <laughs> That was so interesting. When I knew Shia would understand. It. <laughs> it's because he what has a stick with him. That's right, with his stick. What did you? What I did mean, you? That was so interesting when he said that he had fun during the revolution. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I wondered. Uh, it kind of shocked me at first, but then I understood the context of it. It's funny, you know. This is another thing that uh, it's so interesting hearing these stories because you know you have these monolithic images, mm-hmm. revolution, time of turmoil, demonstrations in the mm-hmm. streets, you know, yeah. craziness, madness. Yeah. It wouldn't. It would never occur to me, having not been there at the time, or having barely been alive at the time. That would it would it wouldn't occur to me that there would be these kids who actually thought it was a good time in the beginning, at least because they got off school. You know, yeah. it's a totally natural reaction for a kid. You know, it's it's like uh, you you know whenever there's uh, something happening in the world and, and you get sent home from school, it'd be like yeah. You know, uh, exactly. you don't care about what's happening in the world. <laughs> you care about having the time off. I, I can feel that if I were there and I was like 16 years old, I would have fun. Probably. Mm. I think he was younger than that, though. 14. Yeah. 14. Yeah, yeah. So he was. He he is not really involved in the the implications and the politics of it. Yeah. It's just sort of, yeah. There's shit happening. I'm. I'm you know. Uh, yeah. Captain Reza, what did you think of Batman? Uh, what I loved was uh, when you asked him, so it's in, is it inevitable going to Mars or like having to leave the Earth? And he said, like with definitively, he said, yes, of course. And uh, it just got me thinking. I'm like, wow, you really got to take this thing seriously because I do listen to a lot of, like I follow uh, Elon Musk a lot as well. And he's he's adamant about the fact that yeah this is this place is not going to last for a very long time and we have to leave and so oh my sad. god it, it kind of sent chills down my spine did you hear that uh, the news today that jeff bezos mm. has mm. decided to uh, go to space yeah that wasn't helping the, <laughs> the, the notion and my fear either so. it, w- it wasn't helping what my the fear of l- having to leave earth and oh my god what what's gonna happen i found i just found it interesting it, it's so i mean I started this interview with Barmack talking about how um, kids, boys traditionally, it's it's totally a stereotype, but that a boy dreams of being Mm. an astronaut or going to space. I found it interesting that Bezos, it's like when you could have everything, yeah. when you when you've got enough money to have everything, because there's been a few billionaires now, right? Yeah, that yeah, have, yeah. That have uh, yeah. 
and including a Persian one. And like it's like you know you got money and you decide okay I'm uh, <laughs> uh, there's nothing left for me but to get on a rocket and go <laughs> go into space. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting. That's true. All right, it's Monday, and that can only mean one thing: letters of the week. Now, when you say "bia," are you saying that to the letters? Come to the letters, like uh, no, please I'm come. calling the audience out to uh-huh. come. And he probably doesn't even do that at parties. Time. He's like the quiet guy. He just does that. That's true. <laughs> He's definitely not the quiet guy. But, uh, yeah. All right. So two weeks ago on episode 112, we had the fabulous singer-songwriter Rana Mansour on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that uh, specific episode, she was talking about um, the different focus of English versus uh, Persian pop songs. And we posted a Rook Minute on that. So a few people wrote about that. And what was she saying? She was saying that in Iranian pop songs, the focus goes more into the lyrics of it. Right. And the, the sound of it is all pretty much the same the, you, the, music, the music there's less focus on the, the right. music and melody was was uh, an argument a theory that she she had right. which which made a lot of sense to us we mm-hmm. don't know, and, oh yeah you know so she was saying if if the music can get a little cookie cutter it's it's because the focus is actually on the lyrics That's on the poetry right. of it rather than worrying about the music being uh, exactly and a few people wrote about that we have one Elnaz Sarbar wrote this is so interesting and I'm glad you shared this. I feel the same way. Lots of Iranian music sounds the same to me. The melody is so repetitive and boring. I grew up in Iran though. I guess it depends on the diversity of the music one listens to as well. Thank you, Elnaz. And then we have a, uh, so this is Leila Bruhim. And her username on Instagram is Leila Music, so I'm assuming she's a musician. So she wrote, amazing, yes, can totally relate. Thank you. Okay. And then as well, two weeks ago on episode 113, we had popular music ensemble Last Talk on the show. We have Soye with last name KH wrote to us, thank you, Jian. It was wonderful. Thank you for promoting local cultures of Iran and introducing them to many people. Love Rastok Group. Of course, Rastok takes the um, music of uh, the melodies of traditional cultures within Iran, Azeri culture, Kordi culture, etc., uh, Gilaki culture, and turns uh, takes those songs and morphs them with a, a modern sound into um, things that they record and perform. And um, thank you, Soye, for that mm-hmm. letter. And actually, the, uh, on that uh, episode as well, you sp- you did it in Persian, which was another yeah, the, very inter- interesting. The, the interview thing. was in Farsi, and I, I spoke Farsi. That's yeah, correct. actually, yeah. a lot of people wrote to us about that <laughs> right, specifically. Right. <laughs> we have a Parpar Adab wrote, This group is amazing. I love their music. Jian, your Farsi is good. Keep having mixed interviews. All right. And then Sheila Nahrvar wrote, Such a great interview. And conducting it both in Farsi and English made it quite intriguing. Thank you, Sheila. Great singer herself. I know Sheila. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. And then we have Turaj Khosravi wrote, Bravo, Jian. You just pulled out your fluent gold Farsi-speaking <laughs> talent out of your <laughs> sleeves without sending us a memo. So proud of you, man. Thank you, Turaj John. That's definitely an, an overstatement. Uh, there's no fluent gold Farsi <laughs> here, but uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. 
Then we have Sam Soday Froat. I can't believe it, Gian. Your Farsi <laughs> is getting better and better by the day. <laughs> this is like the short thing. It's like people are amazed that I can speak in sentences. Uh, okay. Thank you, Sam. And then Zoya Katuli wrote, I like this group's music. And after this interview, I love them even more. By the way, Gian Jun, I'm so impressed by your Farsi. Well done. <laughs> Oh my God! Yadi che chifek mi kada shaya. The bar was low. Aslan eftezo. Ashkal, ashkal. And then Shida, last name A N, wrote, "Thanks, Gian and team. Your program is perfect. Love you guys." Wow. Mm-hmm. That's not the letter of the week. No. Your program is perfect. No, we can do better it, could have, it could have been close, but uh, we have the letter. I give of the that week. the letter of the week. Thank well, you, Shida Julia. Well, that takes away from the letter of the week. Sorry, yes, I retract that, but I appreciate your letter. Thank you, Shida Julia. All right, time for the letter of the week. <laughs> this week's letter of the week goes to a Hani Aryan. She wrote, Thank you for this super fun interview. My five-year-old was dancing to some of the samples you played. What a genuinely fun group of people. Their joyous and festive sound is reflective of their wonderful personalities. Way to go. Hashtag Rastok Music. All right. Very nice. A nice letter of the week going out to Rastok. Thank you very much for that. The fabulous Keon. You're welcome. Okay. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Three hours into the show, what? still, what? still, 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 still can't get. It. <laughs> I thought you were gonna keep going around. No, no, just, just looking. I was actually looking at you. Man, but, I'm starving. Uh, I haven't had lunch yet. Okay. All right. Well, this intermittent fasting. <laughs> yeah, it's is, killing me. Uh, thank you, Captain Reza. Thank you, Groovy Shad. That's full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook, including uh, becoming a patron of our show, which we really appreciate, for five dollars or ten dollars a month. Go to rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com. All of our guests, all of our episodes, all of our extras, including the Rook Funnies with uh, the first edition with Oogie and the Rasu and our Rook TV clip from the Nima Nazari interview from this past week, all at rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together, producer Susan, Ponta the Artist, Thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous Keon, Savvy Roham, Sponsorship Sean, Aray Merdad, Captain Rezan Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and subscribing. Please do so if you have not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizu Mushi.